Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 13 is where we'll be this morning. I actually planned and anticipated to go ahead and just skip chapter 18, but as I looked at it, I was like, man, there's some good stuff here that I think we need to address, and so we're going to dive in this morning, verses 1 through 13 is where we'll be. Uh, read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud, and if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Hear God's word, pick it up in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and found a Jew named Aquila, and a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood will be on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the, Jew, of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one else will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I'm going to read just two more verses um, because I'm going to bring it in later. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. This ends God's reading. The holy of his, his, word, his holy infallible and inerrant word may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, if you were to review uh, Paul's uh, missionary journey in his ministry life up to this point, you would find that uh, much of Paul's ministry has been hard sledding. It has been a tough going for Paul. If we were to go back and review, both beginning back in chapter 9 of Acts, when Paul became a believer and were to work through uh, his ministry, you would see that Paul has had a very tough t- go of it. He becomes a believer there in chapter 9, and immediately, as soon as he begins to go out and teach people in Damascus about Jesus, they're threatening to kill him, so much so that they have to lower him over the city wall in a grocery basket of sorts in order for him to escape. Then, because he had persecuted the church before becoming a Christian, the Christians in Jerusalem didn't necessarily want him around. And so Paul essentially went into exile for a couple of years, wandering out in the desert of sorts until he was welcomed back. Then once he was welcomed back and the church in Jerusalem said, we're great, this is awesome, glad to have you, they sent him out as a missionary. And his missionary journey, although there was lots of fruit there, it was tough going. In fact, in one place, particular place, they, one town took uh, Paul outside the city and stoned him to what they thought was d- the, to death. They left him there thinking he was dead, but he was eventually revived by the Christians in the town and eventually able to keep going with his missionary journey. But that's some tough sledding. I don't know that any of you have experienced that kind of suffering in your particular Christian walk. None of us have quite, quite, quite come so, so close as being stoned to death. One of your children may have thrown something at you, but that's about the extent of it. Well, we come to the second missionary journey for Paul, which is what he's been going on and what we've been in the last couple of weeks. And we see that his missionary journey here begins with a dispute with a man who was probably essentially his best friend and his mentor in Barnabas. They have a dispute in separate ways. And so there's, this is a kind of an ominous beginning to the second missionary journey, a difficult way to begin. He then goes through various churches and wanders, trying to find out the Lord's calling for his life as he wanders around various parts of Asia for a, a time in a period of, of his life. 
Then God comes and makes his calling upon Paul's life clear. He sends him to Macedonia. A man gives him a vision, so Paul's like, sweet, God's given me a call, I'll go to Macedonia. But what is involved in that call? Well, about the same time that Paul gets to, to Philippi, he goes and preaches the gospel, and what do they do to him? They beat him up, they torture him, and they throw him in the jail. Thanks for the calling to Macedonia, Jesus. That's awesome. Then, he, after leaving Macedonia and Philippi, he crosses over uh, the sea. He gets in, into the area of Thessalonica and Berea, where he also experiences some persecution. Then he goes to Athens, which we looked at last week, where many commentators who look at his ministry in Athens note that this in Athens is the place of Paul's least amount of fruit. Only a few people come to know the Lord. There is no account of Paul establishing a church in Athens. And in fact, some people believe that Paul is actually discouraged about his ministry and even about his preaching and teaching abilities when he comes to Corinth. For example, Paul says this, and looking back upon his ministry when he came came to Corinth, he writes this in a letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He essentially articulates that he did not come with some kind of great ability as a speaker. He was laid low about his abilities as a preacher and teacher and an evangelist. And in Corinth, not only do we find that perhaps he is discouraged about even his abilities and the fruit that he's just had in Athens, but we also see that he's left behind Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions. He's traveling alone, so much so that he's even at this point seems to run out of funds to support his ministry such that he has to go back to work simply to make ends meet. And then we get to his ministry here in Corinth. And here it starts out, and we see that he's ministering in the synagogues, and what is their response? His own brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith, what do they do? They reject him. In fact, they abuse him and revile him, it says. These are tough ministry days. I bet none of you have had quite as tough ministry season as Paul has been having. These are hard ministry days. There are hard seasons of life where if you want to be a minister of the gospel, there's going to be some challenging times for a couple reasons. Sometimes it's the nature of the mission fields. It's the nature of the field in which you are working in. Parents, you've experienced this. You are ministers of the gospel to your kids, and often that is a tough and, to be brutally honest, painful ministry experience to plead with your kids to follow Jesus. And yet often what you find in your, the response is rebellion and anger, not just at God, but at you for your leadership and parenting of them. Some of us, for some of us, the discouragement in the hard place in regards to ministry is the fact that we find our own weaknesses there. This appears to be something that Paul perhaps is struggling with. That as a minister of the gospel, he is finding that there is weaknesses, maybe physically, financially, even in his abilities. How many of you have experienced this? Where you've had an opportunity to share the gospel. This gospel, you read your Bible every day, you know the good news about Jesus Christ, and you have an opportunity to tell a friend about it, and it's like you've never, you've never read the Bible ever. Suddenly the gospel is just, it just, it just goes out of your brain. You don't have the words to say. There is weakness in us. It makes ministry difficult. So that's what I want to look at this morning, is Paul's ministry here in a hard place. I want you to look at two particular points. We'll spend more time on the first point, but two, two particular points of what it takes to do ministry in hard places. What it takes to do ministry in hard places, and the first is this, is a faithful minister, a faithful minister. Paul, I think, gives us an amazing example of what a faithful minister in the midst of a hard place, how he lives out his life. I want you to see three, three characteristics or three activities 
Three things that a faithful minister in the midst of a hard place, what they must be willing to do in the midst of the hard place. Pick up in verse 1. I'll read through verse 5. See what Paul did. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Recently, he came from Italy with his wife because of some persecution there. Pick it up from verse 3. They were of the same trade. And so Paul stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews. But when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Here's the first thing I want you to see from those verses about if you're going to be a minister, a faithful minister in hard places, is that you must be willing to work hard. You must be diligent as a minister of the gospel. I want you to see here that Paul is willing to work hard no matter the season of life. Paul here uh, is, we see that he's both has full-time vocational ministry like I am, but the vast majority of you are not called to paid vocational ministry like Paul was and like I am, at least for this time and season of my life. But they, Paul, we see here, is this example of what we call tent-making ministry. Some people, you experience this. Some of you may have heard of missionaries who do this when they go overseas in order to either get a visa into that community or to win a hearing for the gospel or even because they don't want to have to raise support. They decide that when they go to those locations that they're going to work, start a business, uh, do their trade in order to make money and provide for their family and to do ministry on the side. That's what see Paul doing here. And then what we see is that we see the other kind of ministry in Paul's life as well. You see, when Silas and Timothy show up, we find out from later on in Corinthians and from the book of Philippians that the Philippian church had sent a large gift to support Paul so that Paul no longer had to work and make tents and support himself, but the church there would support him so that he could dedicate his time only to the preaching of the word. Now, here's what I want you to see, and in particular for you as lay people, because we tend to think of ministry as being for folks like me. But I think this is a perfect opportunity to point the finger at you. And because of Paul's example here, that he is doing lay ministry for much of these verses and for much of his time in Corinth. He is involving himself. Now, there are two particular reasons. For the most part, I think you all want to be good ministers of the gospel. You want to reach your family and your kids and your roommates and your, the people in your sorority and your fraternity. You want to reach your campus for the gospel. But there are two things that usually we talk about in regards to the difficulty of becoming somebody who's a, a faithful minister. One is fear. We talk about that a good bit in church. It's frankly, we're scared. We're scared to be faithful ministers, to proclaim the gospel. The other, though, is this, and that's busyness. And I don't even mean biz, busyness like an over-busyness. I mean many of you are not given the opportunity to share the gospel on a day-in and day-out basis because God has called you to be good businessmen and salesmen and engineers and parents to the couple of kids that you've got, you're not necessarily have the time to be out there each and every day evangelizing to everybody and ministering around the area. Now, I wanna, I'm sensitive to this as a pastor and the challenges that it is for you all as lay people to come into church week in and week out because you all are seeking to faithfully, you work 40, 50, 60, sometimes more hours in these to be faithful in the kingdom calling that God has given you in your workplaces, and you would not be a faithful person in the workplace if every moment, every sales call was all about you sharing the gospel. Now, yes, that would be awesome if you could share the gospel, but you have a calling and a right and a duty and a responsibility to do with the work that God has called you to do in those places, to be good businessmen, be good engineers. And I want to relieve you from some, some legalistic idea that every person that you ever meet everywhere in every occasion, you have to share the gospel with. 
that that is to be the focus of everything that you do. Ed Hogan tells a story about a guy in his Bible study when he was going through Acts. Who this, this is a particular man in his, in his Bible study, in a, on a men's Bible study that he leads, that was particularly debating him in the Bible study that no, every time, every opportunity that we have, every person I talk to, I must, we must share the gospel. Now, Ed had told me about this. And so a couple months later, I knew about this man and his particular position on evangelism and how we had to, you know, every opportunity. And I saw him in the gym uh, at my weight room at the gym that I go to in the locker room. And I was quite offended. He didn't know me. I was quite offended that he did not share the gospel with me. <laughs> he didn't know me. Knowing this, that he was not being faithful to his own standards we can create standards that are actually unrealistic. Now, mind you, we were getting dressed. So, kind of an awkward situation. And so it's okay to, in those awkward situations to perhaps maybe hold off from sharing the gospel and wait to a more apropos time. Listen, you are called to be a person who shares the gospel. But I'm going to relieve you from, this, from some legalistic role that says every moment, every day, every, some guilt that the scriptures don't call you to. At the same time, When I relieve you from that, I also want to call you to what the scriptures do call you to, which is to have a disciplined commitment to work hard to proclaim the gospel as you are able. And here's what I want you to see. If you're going to be someone who's a lay person, who God has called you to work 40, 50, 60 hours in a job, what we see in Paul is that he's willing to make tents five, six days a week. But what do we also see in Paul's life during that season of his life? That he carved out one day in which he was going to go do ministry. What I want to communicate to you is this, is yes, you have a calling to your job, but in the midst of that, what you must be is you must be intentional and disciplined to use and maximize the discretionary time that you do have in your life to do ministry, to do gospel ministry. That you would think, particularly those of you who are younger, who are new into the workforce, and you're learning what it is to schedule, you must actually plan to be intentional to share the gospel with other people. To say, on Tuesday nights, we're going to have people over from our neighborhood. Or on Sundays, I'm going to give my, all my time to engaging with the impoverished people of my community. That you're going to carve out some intentional space in your life where you can do gospel ministry. That's what Paul did. And I think he gives us a great opportunity here. Now, for those of you, some of you are called to full-time ministry. And I also want you to see the way Paul does that. Because when Timothy and Silas show back up with these funds, what does Paul do? It says he devotes himself. Where it says he occupied himself with the word. Now, that word occupied, it wasn't just simply like he was kind of, he didn't know what else to do. He had to occupy his time. Now, the the Greek word there actually means to give oneself to. In our idiom, in in our language, it would be to throw oneself into the work of the words. And so if some of you are raising money to go to the beach project, some of you are raising money to go overseas, some of you are raising money to go on staff with Campus Outreach, some of you are getting ready to go to seminary, and if that is your calling, and God is going to give you the right and the honor to be paid, to make it your vocation, you better be willing to work hard. We do not need pastors and proclaimers of the gospel who stick their feet up and think it's easy. John Calvin said this. He said, what a hard and laborious matter it is to edify the church. Well, listen, if it's hard and laborious to edify people who already at least claim to love Jesus, how much more is it difficult for you as lay people to edify places in which people hate Jesus? Or maybe your home where you're living with little tyrants. You acknowledge the challenge of it. That it's hard. And if you're going to do ministry in those hard places, you must be willing to work hard. Let me give an exhortation to young moms and dads for a minute. I'm still a young dad. 
I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. In a church like ours, we have lots of young parents, and one of the challenges that I see often is this, is that moms and dads, particularly for those first couple of kids, they struggle to come to terms with this reality, that parenting, if you want to keep them alive, if you want to help them thrive, and more than that, you want to do gospel ministry in your kids' lives, guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to work hard. And the first couple years of parenting is this realization that if you're going to do that, guess who has to die? You do. To your selfish desires, to your selfish longings, it means you don't sleep much. It means you burn the candle on both ends. You're going to labor hard. It means after dinner when you just want to throw them in bed, when you just want to get the day over, it means you're going to sit down, you're going to open the Bible, and you're going to do family devotions. And guess what? The hardest part of my day is family devotions. It is hard. It is hard work. But we must be willing to die. I, I love this. It was kind of a mother goose wisdom. Um, I was talking to Lisa team about this a couple of years ago, about the challenges uh, of kids. And at that time, we only, I think I only had a couple. I thought she said something that was really smart, and I want to share it with you. And Lisa's in the room, so this is awkward for her. She said this. She said, first baby, mommy has to die. Second baby, daddy has to die. And I don't know if she said this, but I've at least added to this to her quote. The third baby, everyone has to die. And the fourth baby, it's all good because everyone is dead. <laughs> the willingness, if you're going to parent, if you're going to do ministry in your fraternity or sorority, guess what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to die. You're going to have to say, I'm going to take the time. I'm going to have to die to my reputation. I'm going to have to work hard. So the first thing you have to do, if you want to be minister in hard places and in hard seasons, is you have to be willing to work hard through it. Second, pick up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood will be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then drop down to verse 12. We're going to jump around here in this passage. Verse 12 says, When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Lastly, jump backwards, though, to verse 9 and look here. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Here's what you see is the second thing you have to do. If you're going to be willing to do ministry in hard places that's, that bears fruit is you have to be willing to courageously speak in the face of fear. You have to be willing to courageously speak in the face of fear. You have to work hard and then you have to speak the truth in the face of fear. You see what's going on here? They reviled him. They were against him, so much so that they were willing to essentially press legal charges against Paul to try to get him thrown into jail once again. And do you see Paul's sentiment? God comes to Paul, and he's going to give him a vision in verse 9, and we're going to look at that more here in a few minutes. But in verse 9, how does God, how, why does God come to Paul? What does he say about Paul's emotional state in this moment? It says this in verse 9, Paul, do not be afraid and do not be silent. Why would Paul be tempted to be silent and to stop speaking the truth? Because he's scourged. Because he's scared. Think about Paul's life. Remember that list of things that Paul has gone through that I mentioned at the beginning? Right? Paul has gospel proclamation PTSD. When people get mad at him, he gets a little jumpy now. Right? When people beat you to within an inch of your life a few times, you kind of go, I might want to extricate myself from this situation. Right? You want to move. You want to get out of there. And so Paul is struggling with this. In fact, he confesses this to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he says this. And I was with you in weakness and what? and fear, and much trembling. He was scared. He was scared. But understand this. It isn't courageous if you aren't scared. 
It is not courage and it's not boldness unless you have a reasonable, a realistic recognition of the dangers of speaking the truth. So how do you overcome those dangers? How do you overcome that to get the courage? You see, I, I think we're a very authentic people now in the American church, aren't we? We like authenticity. It's how people describe churches. My church is authentic. They, they, they wear their problems on their baggage. You know, you know what our baggage that we're all willing to admit, I think, is that we're scared to, to share the gospel. We're cowards. We're, we're, cool with, we're cool with that. We're cool with saying we're all just cowards. Here's the thing that I don't think we're willing to, to, to swallow quite as easily. Is the reason why in your cowardice and in your fear you will not overcome to actually proclaim the truth is because you don't love. That's much more difficult to admit, I think. See, love is what overcomes and what compels us to speak in the face of fear. Love says, you, I, I will bear up, I will be bold, even if this causes me to risk, risk is going to risk something for me. So, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the love of Paul, and it's in an odd place. It's in verse 6. Look at it. What's, it says this. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood will be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Really loving, Right? Parents, don't you want to say this to your kids when they sass you from that one time? That's it, you're out. Be gone. It's a loving word. It's my loving word to you for you to leave. I'm leaving. Now, how, this doesn't sound like very loving. Well, here's what you have to understand. You have to understand where Paul gets these, this language. All commentators believe that Paul is quoting Ezekiel chapter 33 here. And here's, the, here's the, what's going on in chapter 33. Read it with me, verses 1 through 6 of Ezekiel 33. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and he blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. God is giving an analogy here that my wrath is coming on Israel. And I have laid out, I have put prophets who are the watchmen who are to tell you that God's wrath is coming so you need to repent. All right? And if they tell you to repent and you don't listen to that trumpet blaring, then your blood is on your own heads. But he keeps going. And he, but he who heard, heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his own iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. What is he saying? He's saying if the prophets, the apostles, the proclaimers of who warn you do not speak up, then your death will be on their hands. Now, that is what Paul's quoting here. And actually, you know, but you, you might say this. Now, where is the love in that? I'm going to go a step further in this. Because here's what Paul's been doing. He's been proclaiming to them the good news of Jesus, that God did not come in judgment as they deserved, but God came in salvation in the person of Jesus. And they're rejecting Jesus. And so Paul's saying, I blew the trumpet. Your blood is on your hands. But not only that, but I also want you to see that Paul goes about some loving unilateral discipline here. He tells them that he's going to reject them. Now, we see another place in another place in, in Paul's writings as to why he would tell the people of Israel why he rejects them. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. This is Paul's hope in the, reject, in the Jewish rejection of the gospel. He says this. He's dealing in Romans 9 through 11. It's the whole issue of like, what about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people? The gospel is going to the Gentiles, but what about to the Jews? What about God's promises to them? So he says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? 
By no means. Rather, their trespass, he's speaking of the Jews here, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to what? Make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews what? Jealous, and thus save some of them. Do you see why Paul tells them he's rejecting them and taking the gospel elsewhere? Did he have to tell them that he was rejecting them, that he was taking the gospel? He could have said, he could have just said to himself, you know what, I'm not going to share the gospel with them anymore, and then gone and shared the gospel with the Gentiles. That would have been much cleaner. Far less people would have, been not, would have been upset with him. But instead, he goes to them and says, your blood is on your own hands. He's communicating to them the discipline in their life. In other words, this is loving discipline. And the hopes that they may come. Listen, Paul, what, I'm, what I want you to get, the point I'm getting to is this. I know this has been a long road to it. Paul is willing to say hard things in order to get people's attention for the sake of the gospel. He is willing to say truthful things that are difficult. And the question is, are you? Are you? Listen, we've looked at this in the last couple of weeks about the need to have compassion and tenderness and gentleness and to be culturally relevant in the way you look at the gospel. And Paul is those things, but he never shirks from the hard truth of the gospel. Remember we looked at this, a commitment to the truth and a commitment to compassion. Too often, we are because we want people to like us so much, and we want to be nice, and we're so passive that we won't say the hard things. Listen, parents, if you're going to bring do gospel ministry, you're going to have to be willing to say some hard things. Folks on the campus, for your to dorm mates, to those in your fraternity and sorority, you're going to have to be willing to say hard things about their lifestyle. Like, hey, your lifestyle is killing you. You're miserable, and everybody around here can see it. And you're, frankly, you're making everybody else miserable. How is that working for you? You need a better God than the one you're... That's hard truth, but it's a loving truth. Do you love people enough around you to communicate to them the difficult things that the Bible has to say about their lifestyle? The point is this, is we must be bold. We must be bold and courageous that even, even in the face of fear, Paul articulates the gospel over and over and over again, are you? Now, here's the reality. Paul was scared. It's so much so that he asked churches for this kind of boldness. Would you ask for boldness in this way? In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, here's Paul. If anybody's bold, it's Paul. But you, I bet I know why Paul's bold. Because of this kind of request. He's asking for prayer from the people of Ephesians. And here's what he asked for. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Listen, if you're an accountability group, if you're in a Bible study, perhaps you guys need to get on your knees this week and plead for this kind of courage and this kind of boldness. Perhaps you don't have it because you have not asked for it. Would you plead to the Lord to give you boldness? If you want to do faithful ministry in hard places, you must be willing to courageously say the hard things. Lastly, lastly, we're going to see the last thing about ministry in hard places, faithful ministers in hard places. Paul has come from Athens. He's seen very little fruit. There are some commentators that believe that Paul is discouraged at this point. He is slogging it out now here in Corinth. 
uh, things he's, he's given, seeing very little ministry fruit. And even when he actually gets to put full-time effort into it, what the response of his own people, the Jewish people, is to make fun of him, to reject him, to re- revile him. That's verse six. What is Paul's response in verse seven? What's he do next? This has been really bad. He could leave. What does he do? And there he left and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. This is mind-blowing. Because Paul tells him, he disciplines him and says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And yet, who's the next person he leads to the Lord? A Jewish man. Here's the third thing I want you to see about if you want to do faithful ministry. You got to work hard. Two, you got to say hard things courageously in the face of fear. And third, you got to persevere when things get frustrating. So you work hard, you speak the truth, and then you keep working hard and speaking the truth is essentially what it is. That you must persevere in the labors of ministry. Listen, this is a call. That even that child who is difficult and rebellious, who you have communicated the gospel to over and over and over again, that you will try again. To that person in your life, that coworker, that you listen here. Our, our way of doing evangelism is this: we invite somebody to lunch over to our house. We kind of take a backdoor way of trying to get to the gospel because we're really passive, we mention Jesus once, they don't become a believer, and we go, I've done my duty. They're not gonna, they'll just have a hard heart. Hard hearts. Listen, guess what? You might actually have to share the gospel more than once. Because my guess is in your testimony, somebody did the same for you. Especially if you're a Christian kid who grew up in the church. Because it means in your life, you heard the gospel week in and week out, day in and day out, and for some of you, you rejected it all the way, all the way through. For years and years and years and years and years until God got a hold of your hearts. Would you be faithful? Would you persevere in the ministry? That leads us to our last, our other major point this morning. First, you gotta be a faithful ministry, but how do you be a faithful minister? Man, it's tough. Like, this, this is like patent language here. All right, people, work hard. Say hard things. And when you get beat up, keep saying hard things. Keep going. How do you do this? Listen, we're weak people. Paul's weak. You're weak. How do we do this? Listen, if you're going to be a faithful minister in hard places, you must also realize that you have a faithful God. That's what God is to Paul. We'll be brief on this, verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Four real quick things I want you to see here about God's encouragement God's faithfulness to Paul. The first is this, that God reaffirms Paul's purpose. Purpose. Some of you, some of you are wondering, what is God calling me to? This is really hard. I'd prefer another calling. You see what God, the first thing he says to Paul, and he comes into the vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. He reiterates his call to be a minister of the gospel, to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And so I issue that call to you. Some of you are tired, tired of pursuing that same kid, tired of pursuing that same employee, that same friend, that same fraternity, brother or sorority, sister. You're tired of it. It's exhausting. Listen, you're called to it. 
This is God's call in your life. This is why he's put you here. This is your purpose and the reason for your existence to glorify God, to be a minister and a proclaimer of the gospel. Whether it's seven days a week like I'm supposed to be or the one or two or three nights that you're able to carve out in a week to intentionally articulate the gospel to others. So God reaffirms his call, his purpose upon Paul's life. Second, he promises his presence. What's he tell Paul? I am with you. I am with you. Paul's probably ready to leave Corinth. This is not going well. This is going kind of like Athens. I'm not seeing much fruit. Let's go to the next town. Let's get out of here, right? But God comes and he promises. He says, no, Paul, you're gonna stay here. I am with you. I am with you. Now, here's, here's kind of a challenge for us, though, as we look at this, because the reality is God hasn't made us, made, he hasn't shown up to you in a vision and said, you know what, I'm really, I'm with you. Like he does that for Paul. Has he done that for you? He hasn't done it for me. I mean, I have some weird dreams, but none like this right? Well, here's the truth. We don't necessarily need Paul's specific promise from God because it's everywhere in the scriptures. The the passages that many of you already know, Psalm 23, right? We all, if you learned it, you learned it in the King James, so we have to read it in the King James, right? God's promised us his presence. He says, I will not be afraid for thou art with me, right? He's with you wherever you go. Matthew 28, the great call to gospel ministry for all peoples, all, church, all churches, all Christians is this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and surely I will go with you. I'll be with you wherever you go. Matthew 5, God's protection, that not a hair can fall from your head without God ordaining it. And Matthew, in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do we need God, Paul's uh, specific promise from God? It would be nice. It would be really nice. And let me tell you, for some of you, maybe this is God's voice speaking through me, through God's word, saying, God is with you right now. And God is with you as you go back in to re-engage in gospel ministry where he has called you. But he goes with you. He goes before you. He goes, yes, with the spirit of the living God in you. Third, in the midst of that, he promises to Paul his protection. He promises to Paul his protection. God promises to go with us into and through suffering. We know even when we suffer and we're persecuted and there's difficult times and people don't like us, that God's promise is that he's there with us even in the midst of harm. Now, if you're Paul, to Paul's great relief, after years and years and years of that promise just being, hey, Paul, while you get beat up, I'm here with you. Isn't that nice? Now he tells Paul, thankfully for Paul, in this case in Corinth, you're going to be protected. They will not touch you. Now, we don't have this specific promise. We don't have this specific promise. You may get sick. Things may go badly in your evangelism. Things may not go well relationally. God may not necessarily protect that relationship. But here's what we can know. That because of the providence of God, which we just read about God being with you, is that if there is rejection, if there is suffering in your life because of your gospel ministry, is it is not outside of God's providential plan for your life. Not a hair can fall from your head. So he may choose, he may choose to allow you to go through suffering, but it is not outside of his hand. And it is not outside of his gospel purposes to bring about his good in your family and in your life and in the life of other people. Rarely, rarely do we get a specific promise like this, like Paul gets. But here's what we can lean on, is God's general promise that he is everywhere, and he has planned everything, and he is providentially and sovereignly in control. Here's the last thing I want you to see about the faithful God that we have. Is he promises Paul people, fruit to his ministry. Land of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are of my people. What, What does God mean by that? I have many of my, this city who are of my people. 
What he means by that is that there are those who have been appointed by God in Corinth. That they, are not say, that they have not trusted and put their faith and trust in Jesus yet. But God said, my bullseye is on them. And not only is my bullseye on them, but I have appointed them. I have elected them. Dare I say predestined them. I have chosen them to be saved. There are those, and here's the reality. There are those, this means, there are those in this town who are sleeping off hangovers and are waking up in beds that they have no idea who they're sleeping next to and perhaps, even, even worse, maybe sitting in church pews who have nothing, who want nothing to do with God. And yet God has marked out a day and an hour and a moment when he will say, you are mine. You are mine. And that means because God has elected and has chosen a people for himself that you now have the privilege. It's not up to you to save people. It's your job simply to be, have, have the privilege to proclaim God, the gospel to them and hope that God does the fruitful work. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul's preaching, and he has this perspective. The writer of Acts says this. And when the Gentiles heard this, when Paul proclaims the gospel, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me ask you, which came first, the believing or the appointment? Did they believe in God and so God appointed them? Or does God appoint them and so they believe in God? Well, the logic of the statement is God appointed them first. God does the appointing. God has set it on their schedule, on their calendar. Hey, on this calendar, 2018, that person's mine. That's the elect. That's the chosen. And as missionaries, as missionaries, as ministers of the gospel... This should be comforting to us. You see, why, why should missionaries continue to work in hard places? You know, there's missionaries doing this all over the, over the world in which they'll labor for five, six, seven, eight, nine years and hardly see any converts, if any at all, because they come back to this text and this belief that perhaps God has a people here, an elect people, for he has promised that he has said, I have a people in every tribe, tongue, and nation, and therefore will go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and every corner of culture and society, because we say, we trust and believe that perhaps God has a people here. Paul says this. Paul says, I endure in hard work. He says this in 1 Timothy 2.10, or 2 Timothy 2.10. I endure for the sake of who? The elect. The elect. I work hard because there's someone out there who God has appointed for salvation, and I want the privilege and the honor to be the one that God moves through to bring them to himself. This, is, this, this doctrine of election is drawn out in a word called Calvinism. And some of you may not like terminology, and that's fine. But that is the word to kind of give us. We like categories in theology. It's helpful. You have categories in your life. Theologians get to have categories too. If you don't like it, you probably need to grow up. But John Newton said this in a letter to a guy named Thomas Jones. He talks about this in his own ministry. He said this, As to myself, if I were not a Calvinist, someone who believes in God's electing work, then I should think I would have no more hope of success in ministry than I would to preaching to horses and or cows. In other words, some people look at this doctrine of the fact that God has appointed and elected for himself who he's going to save, and they say, my goodness, why in the world should we do ministry? But what I want you to see is actually it's the whole reason why you do ministry. If, you, if it's up to you to save people, guess what? Ain't nobody coming. You don't save people. You can't save people. But if God is elected for himself, then we have that we, it's the foundation. God's electing work, his promise that I have a people in this place, is God's reason for giving Paul why he should continue to proclaim the gospel in Corinth. This is the logic that we see in the scriptures. Some people still continue to have issues with this. One person came up to Charles Spurgeon, who was also a Calvinist. He was the greatest preacher, perhaps, in British history. And he said, the man said this, well, you believe in this doctrine of election. Then why do you keep preaching? 
God is just going to simply save those he's going to save. And Spurgeon said this, because the elect don't have yellow stripes on their backs. You and I don't know who they are. We simply get the privilege of being curious about, is, about who God might bring into his family. Could you be curious? And could your curiosity about what God is doing in this town and in your home and in your fraternity and on your college campus be, my goodness, who has God elected in this place? Who is he elected? Frankly, I think about that here. You don't come in with a big elect stamp on your forehead. That would be nice, but you don't. That's the third thing. God has given him a people. Listen, ministry's tough. Ministry's really hard. And here's the truth. that Man, if you're going to be someone who works hard, if you're going to be willing to say hard things and endure the fear and the consequences of that, and if you're going to persevere, that you must rely day in and day out upon this faithful God. The one who says, listen, I've given you a purpose in life. I'll protect you. I'm with you. And I've given you fruit. I've given you fruit ahead of time that I've laid out for you. Close with this story, and then we'll be done. Um, knew a pastor who I think is a great example of this. Um, I have a great relationship with this particular pastor. He's been in ministry over 30 years. His first 20 years of ministry were phenomenal. It was great. Life was awesome. He had one of the, fa- he had the fastest growing church, one of the fastest growing churches in his denomination. He had the, had, his church had become the largest in his particular community. They had a large Christian school. They had a pretty, the largest homeschool group in the community. They were planting churches. People were getting saved. Life was good. His wife loved him. His kids were walking with Jesus. This is good stuff. But about 20 years in, things went haywire. For some reason, the church stopped growing. People, in some ways, began to let, leave. They would move away, and they wouldn't be replaced. And so the church slowly was shrinking, not fast, the, the Christian school people and the homeschool people began to fight over who got to use the buildings. And it became really hard. And the church stopped growing. They stopped seeing conversions. Not only that, because, because of this, people began to question his leadership, including uh, his right-hand man, the associate pastor in the church, began going to the leadership of the church and saying, I don't think he's got it. He doesn't have any more. He's not the leader for this church. And so over time, he, began to, he, he, would, he made all these attempts to try to change things and to change the direction of the church and, and to make peace and after five, six, seven years of this, he began, he finally said, I think it's time for somebody else to lead this church. Now, in the midst of that, after tw- over 25 years of being the pastor of that church, in the midst of this and getting ready to resign, at the same time, there was a dynamic youth pastor who was weaving his own work there and was telling the church about the failings of this particular pastor's leadership. And he was one of those guys who could just draw people to himself. And more and more people, so much so he actually had affairs with multiple women in the church. It came out later on. But he was at the point, so, that, so much so that the day that this pastor resigned and said, I'm leaving, I need, God's calling me elsewhere, you need a new pastor, that this youth pastor was ready to split the church and ready to take 30, 40, 50 people with him. So he leaves, this pastor leaves the place where he had loved and given his life to for, all of his, all, for much of his, his youthful days. His marriage at this point is in, in trouble. And at this point, his kids are beginning to be angry at the church and at him. For two years, he wanders around. The Lord, he almost gets a job at another church. He's trying to figure out what the Lord's calling him to do next. Do I be a seminary professor? Do I go to another church? For two years, he wanders around. He's not, not sure quite what the Lord's calling him to do. Finally, after two years, he gets a call at another church. Not quite as big as the church he was at, but a good-sized church. And he goes to that church, and he's excited. This is a new call. It's a fresh start. Things are going to be great. It's been a difficult season. Find that we're coming out of the valley and out of the darkness. It wasn't, wasn't to be. 
He gets to the new church, and, he, and it's, it's, it's the, the situation there is the associate pastor wanted the lead pastor job. And he and his wife are so angry that they refuse to meet with this new pastor. They refuse to come to church, so much so that three, four months later after the session, the leadership there of that church had worked with this, this associate pastor over many, many months, pleading with him to come back to work and actually do his job and to minister in the church. They finally decide to fire him. Well, guess who you think, who got blamed? The new guy. Oh, you're coming in here and you're changing, so people begin to leave immediately. Then over the course of the next couple of years, they lose multiple staff who are frustrated. They are taking on new leadership roles at various churches. He has another staff member die of cancer. Then, then it gets really hard. Then it gets really hard. Because one day they find out that one of the associate pastor in the church and the lead women's ministry coordinator, she, another a full-time staff person, are found in the offices, overserved. It appears that they've actually been having an affair for quite some time. After months of trying to do peacemaking and reconciliation with work with them, the church eventually decides that they have to fire both of these staff people. Well, the girl who was fired, her dad's a lawyer. He's angry. So he comes after the pastor and sues him personally. He sues the church, and he sues the denomination over the firing of his daughter. They go through litigation for multiple years. More people leave. More people leave. Then in the midst, right smack dab in the midst of that, the worst of all. A woman in her church believes she's hearing from God that she would be a better mother if she did not have three kids, but she only had one. And so she did something about it. So here's the church. More people leave. Here's the situation. This is ministry in a hard place. This is a decade. Now, I know this pastor very well. In fact, we talk at least once a month. But here's the most amazing thing that week in and week out, month in and month out of this season of darkness. Oh, I didn't even tell you. His daughter is pregnant out of wedlock as of this year. But here's what he has said. Cling to Jesus and keep going. Cling to Jesus and keep going. In other words, brothers and sisters, God has called some of you into a very hard place. Ministry is really hard right now. Either because of something going on in you or something going on in your ministry field. But here's the call from this. Cling to Jesus and keep working hard and you keep going, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you teach us to cling to Jesus. We are people that when parenting gets hard, we just want to talk out and process out and think about all, this, all the things if we could just do this and this and this. Lord, the reality is we can't control a lot of these things. We can't control our friends' hearts. We can't control the circumstances in a lot of ways. But Lord, so I pray that we as a people would run to the thing that is sure and that is true. And that is you. That you are great and you are big and you are powerful and you have made promises to us. And that Lord, even in our lack of faithfulness, even in our weakness, you have shown yourself not just to be strong, but to be faithful to us. God, I pray that day in and day out we would do that. I pray that moms and dads in this place would do that. I pray that those who have been seeking to faithfully share the gospel would do that. When it gets hard, when it gets tough, they would cry out to you for help. They would cry out for boldness and courage. And then they would speak up once again. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.